What is going on, DMV? How's everybody doing today? 106.7 The Fan is on your AM FM dial. It's on the Odyssey app, and it's on our stream at thefandc.com. However you're tuned in today, well, we appreciate you hanging out with us for just a bit. My name is Danny Noakes. Our guys, Linnell Willingham and Denton, here to produce the show. Appreciate all of their hard work. We're jumping on the air just a little bit behind schedule today, but we're with you up until four o'clock this afternoon and coming up a little bit later on right here on 1067 the fan we've got a little washington nationals coverage for you astros at the nats 705 first pitch pregame coverage with charlie slows and our guy pete medhurst beginning at 6 35 and hey in just about 15 minutes we get to talk to the man the myth the legend Pete on Sports, Pete Medhurst, co-host of Russell and Medhurst weekdays, 3 to 7 p.m. over on our sister station, the Team 980. He's the play-by-play voice of the Naval Academy. But this weekend, he is serving as one of the play-by-play announcers for the Nationals. Homestand against the Houston Astros. He's doing it alongside Charlie Slows, so very excited for Pete. Certainly not the first time he's had the opportunity to do that, but we will talk a little bit of Nationals baseball with him Get an update on what's going on with the team. You just heard Nats Insider with Mass and Dan, Dan Colco. So, yeah, there's a little bit of baseball infused into today's program, but most of it is going to be spent on the NFL. National Football League schedule release just a couple of days ago. The Commanders, what does it shape up to look like for them? First five games of the season, very crucial. First two, a lot different than the next three. And that's definitely something that we're going to spend talking about. But where we begin today, where we begin this afternoon, is on the ice and with the Washington Capitals, who saw their season come to an end last night. And who else would it have been but Carter Verhage for the Florida Panthers to score that game-winning goal? Took only two minutes, 46 seconds into overtime last night. He gives Florida the win. And by the way, Second time he's had the game-winning goal in overtime back in Game 4. I'm sure everybody remembers that very well. Final score, 4-3 to last night. The Panthers win their first playoff series since 1996. And, yeah, that's quite a drought. 26 years. They appeared in the Stanley Cup Final that year, by the way. But since we're on the topic, the Capitals have now not won a playoff series since winning the Stanley Cup out in Las Vegas back in 2018. And that, at this point... Is coming up on four years ago now. But before we look at this from a big picture standpoint, and whenever the Caps get bounced at this point, that's what we always do. Start to talk about Ovechkin, Backstrom. How much longer are they going to do this sort of thing? Ovechkin's still chasing Gretzky's goal-scoring mark. But I want to look at what happened last night and in this series before we really start to zoom out and kind of look at what the future might be for this team. But the Caps were dead meat last night at, at one point, right? Backstrom put them on top 2-1 to one early in the third period when he scored not even two minutes in. Capital One Arena was fired up. There was hope. There was belief. Still could definitely, and I was just watching the game on TV, but you could still definitely feel the fact that there was a little bit of uncertainty what was going to happen next. Still, a lead early in the third period, there was hope. But Florida came roaring back. They scored two goals, the second of which left the Caps with only about six minutes to try and tie the game. And that's obviously when things started to get desperate. Caps have to pull Samsonov. You get the extra attacker. And they actually did get a couple of shots on goal before the Caps somehow found a way to draw a penalty. And then they went on the power play. And 
The Caps have actually been very good on the power play against Florida in this series. They've certainly outplayed the Panthers with the man advantage, and that's one of the things that you could take away from this series. But obviously, with the Caps season being over, you'd trade that for a series win. Now, the Caps continued their blitz of Bobrovsky, who was in net there for Florida, and they had the extra attacker out there along with the power play. So the effort, you got a pretty good shot when you've got that advantage (laughs) with just not only the power play, but the extra attacker as well. And it ended up proving successful. The Caps, they peppered Bobrovsky, and TJ Oshie gets that game-tying goal right in front of the net with just over a minute to go in the game. And he found a way to force overtime. That puck was bouncing all over the place when Oshie finally got it to go in. I don't even think it was his stick that hit it before it ended up going into the net and hitting the top of it. It looked like Mantha actually had the best shot at putting that goal, uh, putting that puck in the net, but it was Oshie that tied the game, sent it to overtime. You know, I've always felt that hockey is really weird because you feel like anything can happen at just about any time, but I really did not have a good feeling going into overtime based on the way that this game and the series had gone. And lo and behold, for Hagee, who had just been a thorn in the side of the Caps all series long. He scores the game winner, the series clincher. It didn't even take three minutes, and the season is now over. And so the Caps finish the 2021-2022 campaign with a three-game skid, and that's after they took a 2-1 series lead on the team that won the President's Cup. That's the team with the best record in the National Hockey League. It stings. It stings. It stings almost as much as any of these series losses in the Ovechkin-Backstrom era, if you will, right? That's kind of how we measure when it comes to the Washington Capitals and since Ovechkin and and Backstrom have been a part of the most successful run. But I don't know about you guys, but I I do take some solace in the fact that that Stanley Cup in 2018 will always be sitting on the trophy shelves, and that makes these losses just a little bit easier. Again, not trying to take anything away from the sting that it did feel like when that game went final last night. And it's still disappointing when you've got the greatest goal scorer of all time on your team, along with a handful of other all-star caliber players. Florida had been dubbed the comeback cats, though, with more comeback wins than any other team in the NHL this season. If Washington just could have changed one letter in that phrase right there and made it the comeback caps, things would be looking a whole lot different. But Obviously, there's a lot of factors that go into why the Caps lost this series. Losing Tom Wilson is impossible to ignore. That's a huge factor in why this series went south. Wilson scored a goal back in Game 1, and then he left with an injury. We didn't see him again this season. Skated yesterday morning, looked like there was a chance he might play, but just wasn't meant to be. And he's a guy that, as much as you miss his production, which seems like it's increasing every single year, you really just miss his ice presence just as much. And... Over the last couple of years, the Caps have relied on him more to be a factor in the offensive zone as opposed to a guy that is fighting as often as he used to. That's been dialed back a little bit. But he still is Tom Wilson, and you're still afraid of him if you're most of the guys in the NHL. And again, him just being out on the ice makes it harder for the other team. Certainly makes it harder to game plan. Tom Wilson's physical. He plays fast. And yes, he's very talented offensively. So not having him out on the ice, despite the fact that the Capitals won a game without him and should have won at least two, they still missed him a whole heck of a lot. But Game 4 is very obviously where this series completely shifted. 
The Caps were as they were last night. They were up 2-1 to one in Game 4. Florida was in desperation mode. This was much later in the game. They had already pulled Bobrovsky as they were trying to tie it. Garnett Hathaway ends up with the puck just inside the defensive zone for the Caps, but he did have a pretty clear look at a wide-open net. Hathaway shoots, and he rings it off the left post, and I don't even think it was a minute later that Reinhardt ends up tying the game, and that was the game that Verhage also went on to win it for Florida in overtime. Now again, Hathaway pretty far from the net when he took that shot, but still, he obviously should have made it. And if it goes in, the Caps go up 3-1 to one in the game. The game is out of reach. And then they take a 3-1 series lead going into Game 5. And the momentum is going the Caps way instead of Florida's. So to me, and I'm sure most of you, that's really where it all went south. And the Caps let that doubt start to creep into their minds. I'm not saying it not wouldn't have necessarily happened to another team either. This is how hockey goes sometimes, right? You're, you're a wide-open net shot from almost the entirely opposite end of the ice, but still get it on net just to ring it off the left post. Now, game five, they come out of the gates just absolutely on a tear. They came roaring out of the gates. Caps go up 3 nothing, And then they let the Panthers score five unanswered goals. And Verhage went nuts. He went for five points that night. Two goals, three assists. And so now the question becomes... Are the Caps finished in terms of their core? Ovechkin, Backstrom, Wilson, Carlson. Not that they're, or we're saying that they're considering uh, getting rid of any of those guys. That's not what we're saying. It's, do they still have the juice to go and win another Stanley Cup? That's the question, really, that is being posed here. And I'm not going to write them off just yet. I'm, I'm definitely not going to write them off just yet. No way. I know that they're getting up there in age. But I just I, I can't write them off with still so much talent. Ovechkin's still a 50-goal scorer. I mean, Backstrom went out and, and had some, despite missing a good bit of time this year due to injury as well, he went out there and had six points in six games. Oshie, very limited in the regular season, came up with several big plays throughout the series. You saw the absence of Tom Wilson, what that did to you. So I just, I can't, I can't bury them for the rest of, of the Ovechkin era. I can't do that. I think that they'll be right back in the same spot next year, and we'll be having a similar conversation whatever first-round playoff series that they get. But there is a disconnect somewhere. I don't know if it's with head coach Peter Laviolette, because he seemed to have them playing pretty well. The best that they had been playing since winning the Stanley Cup in 2018, especially at the end of this season. I don't think that... I think he will still be the head coach when we start up the 2022-2023 season. But that might be his last chance to kind of earn another shot at it. But if you look elsewhere in the NHL, the Rangers came back from down two goals to none, and they stunned the Penguins to force a Game 7. And that was the result that the Caps were hoping for in their own game, obviously. 5-3 to three was the final there. The Rangers trailed in the series three games to one. But now those two are going to play Game 7 on Sunday. And the Panthers, meanwhile, will play the winner of the Maple Leafs Lightning Series with Game 7 scheduled for 7 p.m. tonight in Toronto. So you got some hockey tonight. You also have some NBA playoffs tomorrow, a couple of Game 7s. We're going to talk about that a little bit later on, but right now I want to step aside, want to take a quick break. It's our first of the show because coming up next, 
We're going to be talking to Pete Medhurst, co-host of Russell and Medhurst, weekdays 3 to 7 p.m. on the Team 980, and he has the play-by-play duties alongside Charlie Slows for the Nationals and Astros tonight as well as all series long. So stick around. You're listening to 106.7 The Fan. 2 p.m. hour time to rock and roll. How's everybody doing today? 106.7 The Fan on your AMFM. Dial on the Odyssey app and on our stream at thefandc.com. Appreciate you hanging out with us for a bit. I'm Danny Noakes with you up until 4 o'clock. Linnell Willingham and Denton back in the studio producing. We're not wasting any time right now. I want to go back over to the phones so we can welcome in our first guest of today the day you've heard him many many times here on 106.7 the fan he's the co-host of russell and medhurst weekdays 3 to 7 p.m over on the team 980 our sister station play-by-play voice of the naval academy and this weekend the play-by-play man alongside charlie slows for the washington nationals their series against the houston astros let's welcome pete medhurst everybody he's on twitter at pete medhurst pete thanks so much for the time today sir how are you doing good danny how are you I'm doing great. You know, you're you're well known for keeping quite busy here throughout the sports calendar year, and you've got your you've got your show with Chris over on 980. Your play-by-play duties at the Naval Academy, but you're the go-to guy when the Nats need a pinch hitter to do some play-by-play. And as another play-by-play guy myself, I just think that that's really cool. You've done more than a handful of games over a few years, though, at this point. So I'm curious for you: Do you still get butterflies before calling one of these Nats games? Absolutely. I mean, you're scared to death because. When you fill in for someone of the quality, you know, of a Charlie Slows or a Dave Jagler, the audience expects that quality, you know, you know, when, when, when you take over for them because you're taking over for two of the very best, uh, you know, in Major League Baseball. It's the same thing, you know, a couple of years ago, I had a chance to fill in at Laurel Raceway for the track announcer there, Dave Rodman. And Dave Rodman's one of the top three track announcers in the country. First time I'd called thoroughbreds. Absolutely scared to death because I think if they're, it's just like players. And coaches tell you, if you're not feeling butterflies before performing, then you probably don't care, you know, <laughs> or you just have a pulse rate that's different uh, from everybody else. So, but without question, you're always nervous uh, because so much is expected of you when you're filling in for someone of that quality, um, you know, who does that job on a regular basis. Very well said, and, and you're right. We're lucky to have guys like Charlie and Dave to be able to call games. But well, we're lucky to have you too, bud. The fact that Dave can leave and, and we, we get the broadcast quality that we have here, we're, we're very fortunate here in the district. And I, I want to get your thoughts on that game last night between the Astros and the Nats. Obviously, Dusty Baker coming back to Washington, D.C., a lot of love for him, but a 6-1 to one loss for the Nats. And it was a rough first inning for Josiah Gray. Obviously gave up five runs to the Astros, but after that, I thought he really settled in, Pete. He goes six innings, only gave up one run the rest of the way, five strikeouts to just two walks. So despite that rocky start, very nice to see him weather the storm a bit and work through some of that adversity, wasn't it? Well, for a young pitcher, you know, when you have moments like that, the the manager and the pitching coach are looking for how do you respond to it. And I thought Charlie brought up a good point during the course of the broadcast last night when we were talking about it, the fact that we're playing American League rules now. You don't have the same pressure to pinch hit for that pitcher when you're down 5 nothing that you would uh, under normal National League rules. So you can allow your pitcher to try and right the ship himself. And Josiah showed a lot of maturity after that first inning. For a young pitcher, you know, you can, you know, be, basically be, you know, pissed off at yourself and fight yourself the rest of the game. But he showed a lot of maturity and really settled down after that. So, up in the growth process 
of Josiah Gray. And let's face it, every time he's on the mound, Danny, same thing every time Kbert Ruiz comes to the plate. Because of who they were traded for, the, the magnifying glass is even greater on them. And the performance is going to be judged even greater every time they perform because of who they were traded for. So in a, in a spotlight the way Josiah Gray is, I think you have to take some of that positive away. And look, he's pitched pretty well this year. There have been times where he hasn't had his best stuff, and he has still shut out the opponent for five or six innings. So we're seeing a lot of progress from the young right-hander. He just had a very tough first inning. Give the Astros a lot of credit. During this 11-game winning streak, the Astros have not really torn the cover off the ball. Their pitching has been otherworldly. Uh, but last night, they attacked early, often in the count. And for a strikeout pitcher, that's how you get to them. You attack early and often in the count, so he can't get you in strikeout situations with two strikes, put the pressure on the hitter at that point. The Astros alleviated that pressure on themselves by attacking Gray, who, let's face it, if you go back and look at a lot of those balls, four of the five hits in that first inning were extra base hits, and almost every one of them was a ball in the middle of the plate. So pitch location, pitch execution last night uh, for Josiah in that first inning just wasn't as sharp as it needed to be. And you got to credit the Astros uh, for having that aggressive approach at the plate. I mean, Jose Altuve, the first pitch of the game, uh, hits his 24th leadoff home run uh, of his career, and he set the tone in that first inning for the Astros, who, by the way, have not lost a game since Altuve came off the injured list. Yep, he's definitely been as advertised. We've got Pete Medhurst on the horn. He's the co-host of Russell at Medhurst weekdays, 3 to 7 p.m. over on our sister station, the Team 980. And he's got play-by-play duties this weekend for the Houston Astros Washington National Series alongside Charlie Slows. I want to ask you also, Pete, about the production that we've seen out of Josh Bell. It feels like he's been really dialed in this season. Hitting 342, ended up with another uh, hit last night. That's good for fifth best in the league. It's been a pretty significant step forward for him from last season. But we've seen his potential before. Guy's a good player, but he looks more relaxed now in his second season here in D.C. So what, what stands out to you about the way he's playing? Well, I mean, let, let's, let's rewind the clock a little bit. You know, spring training last year, he was really dialed in and then had the COVID disruption right at the beginning, right before the beginning of the season. Mm. And that really disrupted that rhythm that he had gotten himself into. So the start of last year was really a struggle, especially hitting from the right side. I mean, he just it was dying in his first, you know, 50 or so at bats from the right side uh, of the plate. This year, you see a much better, uh, you know, a much more consistent and I think a very confident Josh Bell from both sides of the plate right now. And let's face it, during the course of an at-bat, more pitchers miss out of the strike zone than they throw it in the strike zone. The question is, are you going to be patient enough to wait for a pitch you can drive? And when you get that pitch you can drive, are you doing something with it? And that's what Josh Bell is doing right now. He's not missing many opportunities to drive the baseball when pitchers uh, present those uh, opportunities to him right now. And it's happening from both sides of the plate. And Josh is as good a guy as it comes in the game right now. You're happy for a guy like him, very humble superstar, uh, you know, in this game, performing at the level uh, that he's uh, playing at right now, he's been a, he's been a, a a much better player there in the three spot for Davey Martinez in the Nationals here so far this season. But Pete, before I let you go, let's look at the matchup tonight. Obviously, Nats Astros going head to head once again. But Eric Fetty is going to get the ball tonight for Washington, and he's actually pitched pretty well over his last few starts, only allowing three runs over that time frame, two and two this year, 3.9 ERA, Christian Javier, the opposing pitcher for the Astros. 
what do you expect out of Fetty tonight, his last couple of games? Hopefully he can continue this trend of allowing very few runs to cross the plate. Yeah, I mean, Eric's, Eric's repertoire is there. He's got, you know, the pitches that you need to win at the big league level. And I think if there's, you know, if Eric Fetty could take some Max Scherzer videotape and study it mm-hmm. and just attack the strike zone, and, and be more consistent in that vein. Put the pressure on the hitters at all times. You know, Eric's pitch count gets up seemingly every game right now, and, you know, he ends up getting you to the fifth, to the sixth. But it's getting beyond that mark right now that is the challenge uh, for Eric Fetty. If somehow he can rein his pitch count in and attack the strike zone more consistently, and but more importantly, effectively, you know, Eric's got the goods to be a pitcher uh, in anybody's rotation right now in Major League Baseball. Uh, the guy he's going up against tonight, Christian Javier, I mean, th- this young fella has done everything that has been asked of him. You know, his playoff performances have been solid over the last two years. You know, like 30, he's pitched like, he struck out 32 in like 11 innings of, uh, you know, or 20 innings of playoff pitching. Mm-hmm. And whatever role that Houston has asked of him, whether it's being a starter, whether it's being a reliever, Last Sunday, he was the middleman of three in a one-hit performance against the Tigers last Sunday. Whatever role has been asked of Christian Javier, kind of like Framber Valdez last night uh, for the Astros, you know, he's, he's risen to the occasion. He's had the answers. And to me, uh, this is going to be another tough, you know, opportunity for the Nationals against a guy like Javier. And look, let's face it, Houston's in a, going in a really good way right now. They've won 11 games in a row. And... You know, Charlie and I talked about yesterday, it's not been one or two pitchers. You know, Verlander's been great this year, but it's not just one pitcher or two pitchers that are setting the tone for this rotation. It's everybody. It's everybody on their staff right now, and that's what makes it tough for anybody that's facing the Astros at this point. Imagine the Angels. The Angels are playing some of their best baseball in literally 10 years, and they look up, and they're still trailing Houston in the standings because the Astros have won 11 games in a row. So, at, at some point, look, we know the, the law of averages change, but uh, we'll see if, uh, you know, we can find some answers uh, against a guy like Javier tonight. And look, with, with the lineup the Nats have in the middle, Cruz is hitting the ball better, made good contact last night, drove the ball to the opposite field. When you have a 2-3-4 like they have and the potential that they have, um, you know, you take your chances uh, each and every night that uh, you can score some runs finally and That'll be the challenge tonight for the Nationals to put it in play against a very tough pitcher. 11 wins in a row has been good enough to give Houston a 22-11 and 11 record. 11 games over 500. But as Pete said, Law of Averages says that that'll cool off at some point here. But Astros, National 705, first pitch from Nats Park. Our guy Pete Medhurst has the call alongside Charlie Slows right here on 106.7 The Fan. Pete, thanks so much for carving out a little bit of time for us on a game day, my friend. Appreciate it. Have a great call tonight. We'll be tuned in. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it. Yep. Be well, man. That's Pete Medhurst. He's the co-host of Russell and Medhurst weekdays from 3 to 7 p.m. over on our sister station, the Team 980. And as we said, he is on the call tonight for the Nats and Astros game. 7.05 first pitch, 6.35 pregame coverage right here on The Fan. And you'll be able to hear Pete this fall as, of course, he resumes his duties as the play-by-play voice of the Naval Academy. Yeah, that guy keeps plenty busy, doesn't he? The Nationals, meanwhile, yeah, not a great start to the season. 11-23, and obviously at the bottom of the National League East and expected to finish below the 
bottom of the, not below the bottom of the entire National League, but yes, towards the bottom of the entire National League. But you kind of heard Mark Zuckerman talking about it in Nats Insider with Dan Coco just before we got on the air. As this season goes along and Joe Ross starts to get healthy, right? And Steven Strasburg hopefully starts to get healthy. Obviously, with Strasburg, you just it's hard to kind of pin down when exactly you might be able to expect him back. But you heard Zuckerman talk about those guys being near ready to start some rehab assignments. You could see them suiting up in one of the Nats minor league teams here over the next couple of weeks. You get those two guys back. You get a Doan to go along with Josiah Gray and Eric Fetty, who hasn't been too bad this season. And maybe they're playing a little bit more competitive baseball towards the end, middle to end of this season, and then it sets you up for, for a better 2023. But Nats, Astros tonight, 7.05. Right now, let's step aside. We'll take a quick break. We've got NBA playoffs to discuss. We've got the NFL schedule release to discuss. There is plenty more to get into. The phones will be open in the next segment, so keep it locked. You're listening to 106.7 The Fan. A big thank you to Pete Medhurst, co-host of Russell Medhurst, weekdays, 3 to 7 p.m. over on our sister station, the Team 980, and... As we've been saying, yes, he does have the play-by-play call alongside the great Charlie Slows later on tonight. 7.05 first pitch, Nats hosting the Astros once again. 6.35 pregame right here on 106.7 The Fan. Probably not going to go back and talk much more baseball for the rest of the show. We actually, I look at this, we don't have a ton of time left. It's already almost 2.30, we're with you up until 4. Lots more great stuff to talk about. Don't get me wrong. NBA playoffs, NFL schedule, and stuff like that. But we got on here a little bit later. There was some scheduling issues and whatnot, but we're here. So if you want to jump in on the conversation, great way to do that. The MGM National Harbor listener line, 800-636-1067 is the number to call. Or you can send me a tweet. I'm on Twitter, at Danny Noakes. That's N-O-K-E-S. Or you can tweet the station, at 1067thefan. I have some stuff on the NBA playoffs. I'll bring Linnell in to talk about that. I first, though, want to get to the NFL schedule release, and I want to kind of zoom in on what the Washington Commanders' first couple of games look like and their whole season, what can we expect. Now, the schedule reveal has become a huge thing in the National Football League, which is quite entertaining, right? The NFL has absolutely figured out how to dominate the sports calendar year, certainly for all 12 months, but... When you look at it, they, they've got a pretty much a new sort of thing happening to draw attention to every single month that's not September through February, right? Because that's the time that the regular season and the playoffs and the Super Bowl take place. But I didn't even need to look at the commander schedule this year to know that I'm already going to be more hopeful going in than last year. Because we've said it several times, their schedule was ridiculous in 2021. They played Justin Herbert, Josh Allen, Matt Ryan, Patrick Mahomes, Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady, Russell Wilson, Derek Carr, not to mention Dak Prescott twice, (laughs) who the verdict, I guess, when it comes to big games is still out on, but he's still considered one of the top 10 quarterbacks in the league, I would think. In fact, I think that's six out of the top eight quarterbacks in the league right now. The only guys that I could think of that were missing that they didn't play last year, probably Lamar Jackson and Kyler Murray. But that's what you get when you win the division. You get a division winner schedule. It doesn't matter if you still had a losing record and kind of found a way to sneak into the playoffs. 
but I knew there was no way that this year's schedule could be any harder than last year's. And boy, was that proved true because the Commanders now have the easiest schedule in the NFL. Now, it doesn't mean that there won't be some bumps in the road. Of course, there will be, and no team ever stays healthy for an entire season. But yes, at least by every metric, by pro football talk and several other outlets that cover the National Football League, the Commanders have at least tied for the 32nd hardest schedule in the NFL. I don't, I don't view that as a bad thing, trust me, especially after what we went through last season watching this team having to go up against the quality of quarterbacks that they did. That was tough, and they still found a way to win as many games as they did the year before. But so, as you, as you look at the schedule for 2022, you've got to start 2-0. Have to. There's just no other way, because those first two games can play out, and anyone would think that this team is ready to take a step forward from last year. But you open the season at home against Jacksonville, and that's this is a defensive front, even despite the fact that they've lost Ionitis, Tim Settle, this offseason. It's still a defensive front going up against a second-year quarterback that should produce some pressure. Sacks. And they have to take a step forward entirely as a unit, not just the defensive line, but the entire defense. Now, hopefully Chase Young is good to go by then. I'm sure they're going to be super careful with him as time comes closer to the start of the season. But there's no way that you can let the Jags come into your stadium in week one and beat you and not expect everyone to assume that you're going to be one of the worst teams in the league. That's who Jacksonville was, right? That's why they were picking first overall. Back-to-back years. But you have to be 2-0 and before you hit your first tough stretch. And the Commanders go from Jacksonville in week one, move on to week two, where they'll travel to Detroit, another team that, on paper, before we even get the season started, they should beat. Now, I actually give a lot of credit to Dan Campbell because I think he's got a tough team. Obviously, he's got some memorable sound bites. The Lions are very bad. And Jared Goff is a guy that really has underwhelmed throughout much of his NFL career, or particularly his first season with Detroit. But the Lions are not a good football team. And Goff is another guy that should be expected to be pressured by the commander's front, their front seven. So you need to be 2-0 and before you go into this first three-game stretch. And I've, I've really set aside three different three-game stretches that the commanders will certainly have a little bit of trouble with, but it'll tell us a lot about what we can expect. And it starts with this first trio of Philadelphia at Dallas and Tennessee. So that's how the season starts. Jacksonville at home, on the road at Detroit, home against Philly, road against Dallas, and then a home game against the Tennessee Titans. Not to mention, they will play the Chicago Bears on Thursday Night Football, October 13th. So that's two divisional games in your first five, right? And you actually did have something similar happen with them playing the Giants very early last year. And back of the schedule getting kind of backloaded with some NFC East games. But either Philly or Dallas is going to be picked to win the division this year. And it seems like the the confidence in the Cowboys is starting to fade. Now, I think the Commanders can come out of that first five games at 3-2, and and I don't want to say it'll look easy, but I just... I, I actually... The game I think that they're most likely to win there is the Titans game. I have a hard time seeing them going to Dallas and beating the Cowboys 
that early in the season. I, I, I do. I have a hard time seeing that. I'm not saying it's not possible, but the way that they played against Philly and, and Dallas last year, they let them get out to big leads, actually made some comebacks, and those games were a lot closer than they could have been. But something about the Titans early on in the season just doesn't scare me like it does when it the calendar turns to November and December and January. The harder, the colder it gets, the harder Derrick Henry is to tackle. Maybe he's not quite running at full tilt when Tennessee comes to FedEx Field early on in the first five games of the season. I think that's very viable. Not to mention they just traded away their second best offensive weapon in A.J. Brown. And I know they drafted another wide receiver that they're going to expect to make some plays this year, but I don't love the Titans. I, I, I really don't. I don't love what Vrabel has over there, head coach Mike Vrabel. They're not certainly not bad, and I think they're, they're poised to potentially make the playoffs there in, in an AFC South that is not particularly strong. But I, I have more hope than maybe I figured I would have at the end of this past season going into this trio Philly-Dallas-Tennessee, right? So you have that Bears Thursday night football game, like I said, after the the first trio. And then week seven through nine is another tough stretch for the Commanders because you've got the Packers, the Colts, and the Vikings. So got to go up against Aaron Rodgers again. That'll never be easy to do, even if Devontae Adams is no longer there. The Colts is a revenge game. October 30th, Carson Wentz is going to return to Indianapolis for the first time since... The Colts missed the playoffs last year, and a lot of that had to do with the play of Carson Wentz. It wasn't all his fault, because again, the Colts had plenty of opportunities, and it wasn't just what Carson Wentz was doing in those final two games against the Raiders and the Jaguars, both of which they lost. And we all saw that unfold at the end of the latest season of Hard Knocks. But Wentz, potentially, emotional game, it won't be... His only emotional game, he, in fact, will have already played an emotional game when Doug Peterson, who's the new head coach of the Jacksonville Jaguars, meets Wentz for the first time on an opposing sideline when Peterson comes to town with Jacksonville. So that Packers-Colts-Vikings, only team we haven't mentioned now, obviously Minnesota, it doesn't seem like Washington plays well against Kirk Cousins ever since Kirk left. So I, I'm not particularly hopeful for that game. In fact, the Colts game is probably the game I look at the most within that trio and say, yeah, that, that's the one you need there. And so the last trio of games, I said I had three trios that I wanted to highlight as to what I expect out of the Commanders this year and the three biggest stretches of games that they're going to play. The last one is weeks 16 through 18. San Francisco, Cleveland, and Dallas. Finish the season against Dallas, every time you line up against the Cowboys, it's obviously going to be a big game. But the Niners, playoff team a year ago, right? Jimmy Garoppolo's probably not going to be the starting quarterback there anymore. Trey Lance is probably going to step in. But what do you expect out of him? What can we expect out of him? Because we haven't seen a whole lot out of, out of him yet. And then when you go to Cleveland, well, the Browns still have Baker Mayfield, but now they've also got Deshaun Watson. And with the legal proceedings and Watson still kind of up in the air in us needing to figure out a little bit more about what's going on there. And by us, I mean the courts need to figure that out. Who knows what, what situation the Browns will be in when week 17 rolls around and, and, and you know Washington's lining up against the Browns. 
So my my very what's the best word to describe this? My very tame prediction for the Commanders this year is a humble record of nine and eight. And when I told that to Linnell, I know Linnell was was a little bit disappointed because I think he's he's thinking that, and I know he's not alone. By the way, Eric Bickle has the Commanders winning eleven games this year. Their schedule is just weak. It's understandable. I'm just going to be tame. I'm not going to get too optimistic, but I'm going to say that they improve by two games off of last season. And I think a nine and eight record will put them in the mix for a wild card spot at the end of the season. Tough to see them making it, but if you're a little bit better than 500, I think that's certainly an improvement off of last year. But ideally, you win 10, 11 games because the schedule is just so darn weak. So much of it is going to rely on Carson Wentz. Talk about the emotion of playing against your former head coach and Doug Peterson, the guy that drafted you. You have emotion in returning to Indianapolis for the first time. And on Monday Night Football, he is going to return to Philadelphia for the first time. So there's a lot of big games for Carson Wentz personally. But he's the guy that the commanders have put all their chips in on for 2022 to 2023. The good thing with him is, despite that big contract, you can get out of it with relatively little pain if he doesn't play well this season. And now the commanders have drafted Sam Howell. That was a fun realization a couple of weeks ago when we were doing the NFL draft show. And the commanders surprised a lot of people and took Sam Howell in that spot. He had fallen probably a little bit versus what some folks had expected. But it was definitely interesting to see them go and draft Howell. We'll see if that affects Wentz at all throughout the season. It's said to have affected him in previous stops in Philadelphia and Indianapolis. We'll see if that's the case here. He's, he has to know that he is on. He's at the point in his career where he has to prove it. There are things being said about him, some fair and some not. But he has to know that the pressure is on, and he's got to step up and make a play, make plays this season if he wants to continue as a starter in the National Football League. All right, let's do this. Step aside, take a break. We'll come back with more. We'll get to the rest of the NFL schedule, look at some of the other big games across the National Football League. There's some big games on Thanksgiving. There's some big games on Christmas and I'll tell you when they're opening the season. That's all coming up next. You're listening to 1067 The Fan. Game sevens in the National Hockey League today, tonight. Game sevens in the NBA playoffs tomorrow. Pretty good time of year. Happy Saturday, ladies and gentlemen. 106.7 The Fan on your AM, FM, dial the Odyssey app, and on our stream at thefandc.com. Appreciate you being with us. I'm Danny Noakes, Linnell Willingham, and Denton here producing the show. We're with you up until 4 o'clock. And remember, we got Nationals coverage. Washington Nationals baseball coming your way. Not until 6.35, however. Used to leading right into Nationals coverage. They usually preempt us by about 25 or so minutes, but that's not the case today. Although we were getting on the air a little bit later than planned today because of some Nats Insider with Mass and Dan, Dan Colco. Hopefully you had the chance to catch that. Some good information, some good stuff, as always, from Dan. And heard from Mark Zuckerman of Mass and got some thoughts on that. And, and thanks, of course, to Pete Medhurst, co-host of Russell and Medhurst over on the Team 980, the guy that is calling this weekend's games against the Astros alongside 
Charlie Slows. Now, we talked about the commander's schedule here for the 2022-2023 season. I gave you my somewhat timid prediction of 9-8. and eight. I am very confident that the commanders will take a step forward this season, win more football games than they did last year. I'm just... Uh, what can I say? I'm a I'm a I'm a tortured DC sports fan, and I've watched this franchise come in with expectations much higher than those that'll be placed on the team coming into this year, and they've also fallen flat in many of those seasons. So I'm just trying not to get too excited, but I do see the potential in this roster. I think they've got a much better team than they did last year. Filled some very important holes. They still have some to fill, don't get me wrong, especially at middle linebacker. But I do think they take a step forward. And that's why I wanted to bring in one of our producers today, Linnell Willingham, who you hear here on 106.7, the fan and the Team 980, in various capacities. And Linnell, you're a little bit more optimistic on the Commander's season going into 2022 and 2023. And I'm excited. I just want to hear what the logic is behind that. What do you got? Yeah, you were you came on timid, man. I, I didn't. <laughs> this is not the Danny I know. I think they're going to go eleven and six. I like that, dude. That's confident. Yeah, that's what Eric Bickle's got him at too. Eleven and six. That's he's, a lot of wins. He's my guy. We the good minds think alike. Um, <laughs> I, I just look at it. I think people are underestimating the impact that Carson Wentz is going to have offensively for this team. Agreed. And if you look at the schedule from like a team by team perspective. There aren't any daunting pass rushes that we face outside of the one in our own division. Mm-hmm. Talking about uh, Philadelphia and Dallas. I mean, outside of, yeah, you get Cleveland and San Francisco in those back-to-back weeks, and then Green Bay's thrown in there. But other than that, you're not playing any really good defenses outside of, and, and including the fact that you're not playing any good quarterbacks either. I just think they're going to be marketably better with him at quarterback because, like we always talk about, physically – he can just do things that Taylor couldn't do last year. And I just completely expect him to unlock this offense. I haven't mentioned yeah. anything about the defense because that that's where I think we lack at. And I think that's that's probably going to be our Achilles heel this year rather than the offense holding us back. Right. And all of the expectations going into last year were behind the defense. And for them to be a top five unit like they were in the 2020 season and, and make the playoffs, obviously there were high expectations for them coming into last year. And they didn't meet those. Now, not having Chase Young for a big portion of the year, definitely a big part of that. You can't ignore the fact that him not being on the field definitely hurt them. Even if even if you're one of the fans out there that thinks that, that he's been overhyped. I don't think we've seen enough of him yet to, to label him that way. And a reminder that he was the rookie of the year for a reason. He made some tremendously impactful plays. But it's almost like, and I don't want to think, I don't want, it sounds kind of like we're taking the defense for granted here a little bit, but... There's so much talent on that side of the ball that they're going to figure it out. Exactly. There's no way that they could be as bad as they were last year, even though they're losing Tim Settle, have already lost Tim Settle and and Matt Ioannidis. I'm I'm with you, though. All of my focus here goes to Carson Wentz, and I do agree with you 100% that he's going to make this offense a heck of a lot better. Anytime you go to Twitter during one of these Washington football team games last year, everybody was complaining about Heineke and his inability to stretch the field, not make accurate passes in certain situations. And maybe Wentz's accuracy isn't his biggest strength, but he could sure stretch the field a heck of a lot further than Taylor Heineke can. And I, and that I don't does know so much, Danny. Like it, it does. Defenses defenses have to play you differently. You know, exactly. you're not going to get as much of these. You know, a lot of times you watch Washington games, you know. X's and O's, Danny. What are they getting? A lot of these single high looks, mm-hmm. stacking the box, daring you know Taylor Heineke to throw the football outside of the numbers, which he couldn't do. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it, it it was a lot. I'll let you get back into it, but I, I'm I'm passionate about this because I'm like, why is our fan base so <laughs> negative about this team? Yeah, especially and with it, the quarterback we have now. I've heard a lot more negativity than what I'm bringing to the table too. I'm just I'm semi optimistic, a little restrained in, in mind, but I, Linnell, I love what what you're bringing to the table and the arguments you're making. Absolutely, a hundred percent. Like it's like a scoring lover, you know. You've, you've been <laughs> you've been burnt so many times now. You get it, man. Yeah, I, I'm. That's definitely me, and that's definitely a lot of folks out there. But I, see, with with Wentz, he does exactly what they've been missing, you know, and. You, you add a Jahan Dotson who's a deep threat and another guy like Turner, the tight end that they just dropped it, a big guy. They have targets that they can get the ball to, and, and it feels like they added some depth there, running back with Robinson Jr. Yep. out of Alabama. I really like what they've done. I really like what they've done on that side of the ball, and I think that defenses will not be able to help but try and stop the, the vertical threat that the commanders will be this year because – I don't think Carson Wentz is going to be afraid to go deep to Dotson or Terry McLaurin. And who would? Be, who wouldn't be? Because those guys are, are absolute beasts. Or we haven't seen much anything of Dotson yet, but a lot of people have been higher on him than than I expected. Yeah. He's a good player. And you didn't even well, mention De'Ami Brown. I know. I, think, I haven't even mentioned De'Ami Brown. That's I think true. he's going to be you – know, everyone says you know, Terry's going to be the beneficiary, obviously. I think De'Ami Brown – when it all comes down to it, when it's all said and done and everything is over at the end of the season, he is going to be the biggest beneficiary of Carson Wentz because, you know, he had his struggles last year, but a lot of it wasn't his fault completely. If he can, you know, continue to learn how to release better, Mm. you know, as a a wide out, he gets open. The kid can run by any DB in this league. Yeah, that's a savvy point, dude, because, you know (laughs) – when you look at Terry McLaurin, he's probably going to start to get some more double teams. And I think he was already, you know, he was already getting some of those yeah, last year. Saw it, yeah. But he's going to get, he's going to get, he's going to start to get more and more of those. So, like you said, if, if Dotson steps up and, and De'Ami Brown steps up and they're able to kind of stretch the field even more, that's going to be dangerous. Now, the NFL I talked about, Linnell, has really re- figured out a way they're just relevant all 12 months throughout the year. September through February is obvious. That's when the season's going on. But, you know, in, in March, you've got the, the – I guess it's the very end of the scouting combine, but you've got pro days going on. Free agency, it's all – it's free agency. Yeah, that – and free agency might be the, the, like, the biggest drama that we see. Oh, yeah. Certainly yeah. this year with all the wide receivers on the move. And then obviously the draft is in April. And now that we're into May, we've got rookie mini camps. We've got uh, mandatory mini camps, OTAs coming up in in June and stuff like that. So, and that's before training camp starts at the very end of July, and then we get into the preseason in August. So, it's amazing what they're able to do. But our 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 season kicks off, Linnell, with the Bills at the Rams from SoFi Stadium on September eighth, eight twenty kick on on NBC. I love that game too. I, I just want to see more Josh Allen. Yeah. I, I got to be honest. Yes. I want to see more Josh Allen. You know, national treasure. He really is. Potential Super Bowl matchup, man. That yeah. The Bills are probably going to be my pick coming out of the AFC this year. I like that. I, I, I think it's a Super Bowl matchup. I think they got a chip on their shoulder, too. You know? have to. With what happened against Kansas City, I yep. definitely think they got a chip on their shoulder. So our first Sunday night game of the season is Dallas at Tampa. Now, I think that's a pretty good game, too. So we see the Cowboys take a trip, go play Tom Brady in the first week of the season before the first Monday night football matchup, Linnell, which is Russell Wilson returning to to Seattle for the first time. He's not I, wasted I any hate, time. I hate this matchup. You because, don't like that? Which no. one? The the uh, 
uh, Russell Wilson going back to Seattle on the Broncos, first Seattle. Monday night of the year. Yeah. Why are you going to throw? It's going to be a blowout. Yeah. The Seahawks are not going to be relevant or competitive this year. I understand that storyline, but like, there's so many other better storylines. I feel like you could have threw that one on four o'clock Fox somewhere down <laughs> down in October or late November game or something. Yeah, I, I also expect the Seahawks to stink. I, I mean, even last year with Russ, they they weren't very good. So you, I definitely agree with you there. Uh, and when it comes to the Denver Broncos playing out there in the AFC West, most people would agree that that's the toughest division in football right now. So and and speaking of the AFC West, what's interesting here, the Kansas City Chiefs. First eight games are against teams that had a record of 500 or better last season, which is a new NFL record. Now, that is a tough way to start the season. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not as pessimistic about Kansas City and the loss of Tyreek Hill because I thought they did yeah. a lot of good things in the draft to help their receiver room. So, I don't know. I think they'll be better than what people expect. 15 is still back there, so they still true. got something. Then, you know what? They've become very good at drafting. They've become very good at acquiring players that fit Andy Reid's system. They're able to get the ball to all sorts of different guys, right? I mean, someone like Michael Hardman is someone that you would have never heard of probably coming out of college for the most part. And Tyreek Hill would, would be in that conversation too, I, I would imagine. as someone that you didn't really know coming out of college, and then they come in and they just absolutely tear everything up. So I, I, I have faith that, the as you were saying, Linnell, that the Chiefs will reload and the fact that they got Mahomes, impossible to ignore. They'll, they'll be there. But this is the first time that the Packers are going to play overseas on October 9th. They're going to the home of the Tottenham Hotspurs in London. What do you think of the games that go international? And are you a fan or no? Um, You know, normally Saturdays for Linnell, Linnell likes to have a little bit of fun. So waking <laughs> up that early to catch a football game is never fun for me. Yeah. And I hated when... <laughs> the then Redskins went over there yeah. in that brutal season when, when Dustin Hopkins showed that he was a, a terrible kicker. Right. We had to go over there. So, I'm, I mean, I like it. I just I like the I like the NFL trying to expand its business overseas. But waking yeah. up and watching it, not the biggest fan. Yeah, it's it's like a love hate thing. I, I'm I'm kind of with you there because in the on the one hand it's cool to wake up and there already be football on, but right. I'm like you, I, I I'm usually doing stuff to get ready on on, on Sunday morning. Right, <laughs> it's hard to get your fantasy football team ready when exactly. you've got a London game to worry about, right? Exactly. And then the <laughs> so, thing about it, they normally put the trashy teams on, but this that, year I true. see that they've made a point of emphasis to get some more competitive games over there. Mm-hmm. And the the whole point of it is, I never understood with the NFL. They always threw the Jaguars over there or the Texans. And put they're doing stars, it again. Put your stars over there. I mean, I know. you know, like this is that's how you want. That's how you expand your business. You know, yeah. get your yeah. big stars so, over there. Right. So I, th- th- it's funny. The Packers Giants game is the first one I mentioned. Um, th- that's that's most people don't expect the Giants to be very good. No. Now you also have from London a Broncos Jaguars game. So Jacksonville's going yeah, back overseas, of course. Uh, and then you have. Another Monday night game, the 49ers and the Cardinals from Mexico City. Now, that is actually That's an interesting game. matchup. That's an in-division matchup and, and two teams that, depending on what what Trey Lance is like, maybe San Francisco's back in, in the hunt for a playoff spot. So the last overseas game is in Munich. First game in Germany in NFL history, Bucks seahawks So, But that's another matchup where there's really only one good team. Yeah, why is Seattle going? Why do they get the privilege of going overseas? It's a great question. It's a great question. And and the NFL's got some way of rotating these teams and whatnot. 
how they all, always end up with Jacksonville. I, I, I'm sure it has something to do with Khan, their owner, I, I, wanting to be international. Yeah. I, I'm not sure, but the last thing I'll say is, as we get ready to go to a break, the, the Thanksgiving and the Christmas games. The Thanksgiving games, Bills at the Lions. At some point, you got to wonder if they're going to take the Lions off of Thanksgiving, I but mean, maybe not because yeah. it's like their only. It's the only thing that they have, you know. Yeah, it's like the hopefully, one thing that they all look forward to. They'll be a lot better this year, though. So hopefully, you think so? Yeah, I, I like what they did in the draft. I thought I thought yeah. they did well. Yeah, I don't like really that the Commanders. I don't like that the Commanders have to go to Detroit in Week Two. If that was a home game, it's that'd been, be. I, you know, that's yeah, been tough over the last few years for us. Exactly, exactly. See, I, I don't love that one. You also have Giants at the Cowboys. So found out that this is only the second time that Dallas has played the New York Giants on Thanksgiving. First time since 1992. Wow. Dallas pummeled them 30-3. to It's usually us. It's usually Washington right. <laughs> skins. So Giants-Cowboys, and then you've got Patriots at the Vikings. That's an interesting matchup. I mean, just two teams that have nothing to do with each other. I mean, really at though, all. Yes. I didn't understand this one either. Like, what were they thinking? What is the I'm draw to, think, to this? I'm trying to think of the last time I remember watching the Patriots play the Vikings. I mean, surely it was at least it was no more than a few years ago because you're supposed to play every right. team in the NFL like every two to three years. I'm just trying to picture those two uniforms on the field <laughs> against one another, and I can't. There's no relevancy between yeah. the two at all. So those are the Thanksgiving games, and then on Christmas Day we've got four war or uh, three warm weather games. Linnell Packers at the Dolphins. I don't know what to expect out of Miami this year. Uh, I do. That's I'm giving away all my secrets right now. Are you? You're, it sounds am, like you're high on the Dolphins. Yes, I think yeah. the Dolphins win the AFC East. Wow. Okay. Over Buffalo. Yes. And crazy New thing England. to say. Yes. Wow. Now that could be a very competitive division if that ends up playing out. Think about how with three, uh, you would uh, you would assume three potential playoff teams with two of them at least making it there. So if Miami sneaks in, now that would be interesting. Now, maybe, maybe I didn't mean that all the way. Okay. <laughs> we'll I, revisit I, that. <laughs> yeah. They're not going to win the division, but you get the point I'm trying to make. Like, yeah. they're going to be very competitive this year. They got some nice weapons, for sure. The other games on Christmas Day are the Broncos at the Rams. Eh, I guess you got a good quarterback matchup. Yeah. Russell Wilson against Matt Stafford. Yeah. That's a it's a as we said warm yeah. weather game, but that'll be indoors. Yeah. And the Bucks at the Cardinals will also be indoors. But three warm weather locations there in December, which was kind of hoping we'd get a, a snow game, but I guess not. I guess we'll have to wait till maybe January. Or Green Bay's always good for at least one snow. So is Buffalo one yeah. snow game a year? <laughs> they'll, they'll give it to you. Or New England. It'll it'll, yep. it'll happen. It'll happen earlier than you think. That right? That's the way it always happens. It, we get a indeed. snow game in early November or late right. October, right? <laughs> and it's just a whiteout on the screen. I, I right. love watching those types of games. But so there you go. That's a, a little bit of an NFL schedule breakdown. Appreciate Linnell jumping in there to help us do it. Let's step aside though. A little bit over a break here. We'll take another quick break. Enter our final hour of the show. Sam Fortier of the Washington Post. He's on the Commanders beat. He's going to join us at the bottom of the hour around three thirty. So stick around. You're listening to one of six. Seven the fan.